0: We can design one solution, test it, get our new data, and feed them back into that loop, which is the beauty of a generative system, you know.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining me. My name is Franco Veriano, and I'll be your host for the Tech Plus Art podcast. Tech Plus Art is the community for curious individuals and creators who are looking to make a dent in the universe. Together, we're exploring the new frontiers of creativity, humanity, and how emerging technologies will continue to shape our culture, professions, products, and much more. Join me on this journey as we speak with artists, makers, researchers, designers, and creators from all backgrounds and fields. Tech plus art is an inclusive community and we make all our content for you. So we want to hear from you. If you've got any suggestions, topics you'd like us to explore or contribute to yourself, let us know on Twitter or via the website. You can check us out at maketechart.com or at maketechart everywhere else. So with that said, let's get to today's episode. Today we're speaking with Lisanne Follet, the Computational Design Director at Nike's Innovation Kitchen. Originally from France, Lisanne is a musician, designer, and maker exploring the combination of technology and design. Throughout this episode, we explored the benefits of passion projects, from idea to delivery, the importance of improvisation, and the power behind computational design for creators and commercialization alike. So let's get started. Hey Lisanne, thanks so much for being on the show today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: The pleasure is all mine. I'm super excited to have the chance to speak with you and to learn more about you and your amazing work, both personally and professionally at Nike. But before we dive into all that, can you tell us more about yourself? Where are you from and what was it like growing up?
0: Yeah, so as you probably already understand with my accent, I'm from France. And i grown up about 20 minutes east of Paris in the suburb. And it's uh, one of the last big cities before farmlands. So I've kind of always grown up in that sort of concrete meat nature a little bit. Before then, there is uh, only farm on farm for kilometer. <laughs> and it was a very multicultural environment, you know. My neighborhood was mainly composed of gypsy. And i grown up in that sort of with people from all over the world. Both parents are in the art fields. So they are both music teachers and I was always deeply immersed in music. So I started playing the cello around five years old and I still play casually today. I play in yoga studio for meditation class, that kind of stuff. So music, uh, very important to me. Grown up, pretty much listening to music every single day of my life. So um, as a kid, I was always uh, making stuff also. My dad was very handy, so he taught me a lot about making and problem solving. Probably was able to use a hammer <laughs> very early on in my life. And that, that was pretty rad. Then I studied science and uh, engineering, and that's pretty typical for uh, France because uh, the academic system kind of always uh, push kids to go into science. They don't really often, uh, sadly, try to understand if there is some artistic uh, side of a student. They kind of say, hey, if you're good in math and physics, just go to science. You know, don't don't ask yourself too much question. So (laughs) after uh, doing a lot of uh, science, I landed in 2003 in computer science master. And that was kind of an electroshock for me because uh, at the time, the way computer science was taught in France was uh, still very old. Like I remember learning Fortran, all that kind of language. And it was at the same time where Apple was pushing OS X. And I was fascinated by that idea that you could have at the core an architecture that was uh, very powerful, so Unix. And then a layer that was graphic and beautiful, you know. So I kind of started to ask myself, wait a minute, I always had that artistic side and now I'm like just coding all the in line of codes after line of codes so I was I really realized I was missing the artist side and I dropped the school on a few days later after some research I was checking in at the design school in Paris and that was kind of funny moment because I didn't really have any sort of portfolio but rather some random projects you know like so like t-shirt graphic some hand-sewn backpack that I had made on other DIY projects so the head of department keep asking me like why will you drop engineering school you know to come to an art school like that doesn't make any sense to me you're guaranteed to 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 have a good good career if you stick with engineering. So that's pretty much the reaction of almost everyone, you know, but my parents, they always uh, supported me. So they say, go for what you're passionate about. So I restarted from scratch to do a master in industrial design, which took me five years. I did a lot of internship during that time. I always loved internship, learning on the ground. I went to Russia, Netherlands, France. It was a lot of fun. My internship at ArtLibDev in Russia was probably the highlight. Landing in Moscow when you're 24 years old, that massive city in such a multidisciplinary creative environment was uh, really rad. That studio uh, was so vibrant. A lot of young talent from all over the place. And the funny thing is I slept under my desk for a month because I couldn't even find an accommodation. So it was a memorable life adventure. So moving on, uh, later in 2009, I graduated with a Master in Industrial Design, and I set up my own studio in Lyon in France. And I was exploring all kinds of medium from photography to jewelry making. I really wanted that time to be like an exploration of all creative medium, which has since then been something that I try to, to keep doing, you know, uh, really exploring all kinds of medium. And in uh, 2011, I finally joined Nike in the USA as a footwear design innovator.
1: That's amazing. Very inspirational and exciting story. And so at what point in that creative journey were you first exposed to the maker movement or creative technology? Where did the idea of combining technology and art or design to create something new, when did that come into your creative practice?
0: Yeah, so I think stepping back a little bit, There is something that I recently reflected that is interesting is even in my personal practice with music, I've always been more interested by improvisation rather than, uh, you know, reading or reproducing to the perfection a piece. So that idea that once you have built and understand some creative blocks, they can be interpreted, recombined, and evolved in so many different ways, you know. So kind of almost without knowing at that time a, a generative system, because improvisation is really about understanding those logic blocks and then rearranging them into so many different ways by shifting the parameter that could be time signature or that could be pitch and all of that I would say that if I would like to describe more seriously when I got in touch with generative design and making, it was probably when I discovered Arduino. Arduino was a pretty big opening for me, realizing that you could build ID in the physical world, have like data coming from sensor that then could be treated in a way that then will have effect on the real world. That was very interesting to me. And I also, at the time I was learning about jewelry in France, I had the chance to work with a friend of mine that had a wax 3D printer. So I was discovering Grasshopper at the time on rhinoceros, Grasshopper was at his early stage If you're not familiar with Grasshopper, it's programming language and environment that run within the Rhinoceros 3D environment. So it really allowed you to build those sort of dynamic systems, you know, as opposed to model something with intent and then having one fixed geometry. Now you can really start to explore a lot of possible solutions. So what I did with that is I started to do some uh, jewelry, you know, and explore some basic geometric shape. But I will play with them and just make hundred of them, you know, and then select one that I liked and will push it to the, the wax printer. And then it's quite a beautiful process because once you have the wax, you can plug into the traditional jewelry lost wax process, which then the object has the quality of a a refined piece of jewelry, you know? So that idea of going from like an algorithm that generates solution all the way down to a polished piece of gold was uh, very interesting to me as a maker. Very different from what I had explored before, which was more hands-on making.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so while I'm sure it varies from project to project and has even changed as your career has gone on, but you touched on the idea of improvisation there a little bit as part of your creative process. So can you share a little bit more about that? How do you deal with that element of emergence as you build an idea and explore what it could be?
0: Yeah, so I think I'll start with saying that when it comes down to my inspiration or like source of inspiration, I don't really have one go-to I really like to look at everything around me with an open eye, you know, and kind of like start to see if I can see some emerging pattern and connect the dots. And what I've realized over time is I always try to find if there is some learning opportunity along the side of a project. Every time I have learned a new skill or software, when I work on a new creative idea, that has always been a source of inspiration on ID idea, because I realized that then I can connect that new skill with a complete unrelated thought of plans, you know, and it's often at that intersection, that wonder happened. That's often something that I try to do. I ask myself the question is, as I look at that new problem, as I look at those new ideas, is there anything I could learn? Is there any opportunity for learning something?
1: And so you mentioned that throughout that journey, you moved to Portland, Oregon to join Nike, where you're currently part of the innovation team focused on computational design. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to join Nike, about the role, and specifically how you managed to connect these two worlds with this type of outcome?
0: Yeah, so, you know, I joined Nike in 2011, and at the time I got hired as a classical footwear designer within the kind of innovation kitchen, which is the legendary design studio. And the role was more or less like very classical in in sense of like the tool and the process that were used. And at the same time, when I got to Portland, I discovered a pretty deep music scene. Portland has a lot of people that are building synthesizer. There is a company called Dark Place that has uh, manufacturing equipment to build like PCB board and build synthesizer. So I dive pretty deep into modular synthesizer. And modular synthesizer is interesting uh, format because it really allows you for endless creativity. You know, you can repatch it in many ways. When I look at a modular synthesizer, it's pretty much like looking at grasshopper. You know, you have a bunch of patch cable and you connect logic uh, block together to make a that can evolve on its own. So at that time, I started to play with generative system on the side. You know, I build a graphic visualizer that was talking to the synthesizer on processing back and forward through Bluetooth, and you could start to visualize what was going on in terms of uh, signal flow through the use of graphic. And that was a very rich like, uh, creative period, you know, I started to build all kinds of uh, synthesizer module, and I was learning and learning more about generative system. And I taught myself in 2012 that we could probably do the same for footwear, you know? And instead of having synthesizer signal informing graphic creation, we could have athlete data inform uh, the creation of a footwear product. So I got one of my colleagues into the ID and uh, we started a research project. And that's something that is very unique at Nike is on Friday afternoon in uh, winter, we can kind of go after our own IDs on project. And that's how I started, did a research project at work, demonstrating that we could use generative design system on leveraging algorithm and data to actually define a footwear solution. Then what was uh, very new and interesting at the time is you have the potential to then explore a wide variety of solutions and even have athlete data drive unique performance footwear solutions. So that idea that we spend a lot of time collecting information on the athletes, and then uh, we can build a model that can describe the best solution for them. So that was a, the beginning of a very exciting journey. You know, The leadership gave us resources, and we were on building the first ever computational design team on program in the footwear industry. So the thing is that at the time, we could not even find anyone in the field that had experience in generative design on footwear. It wasn't something that was taught in industrial design school. So we built a multidisciplinary team, mainly composed of architects and mechanical engineers. And that was very different from what a normal footwear design team was at the time. And, you know, since then, the work has had a massive impact on the design process and the product. So we keep growing and defining
1: performance product, you know. That's super cool. So can you tell us a little bit about that evolution? What kind of team members make up the team today and what types of problems do you typically work on?
0: Yeah, so we have a very cross-functional team. So my team will intersect with engineer, sports science, really like multifunctional, and we all work together to bring ideas to the table. And I think that rich multidisciplinary background really allowed us to go after complex problems because there is always so much expertise to the table. So highly collaborative environment and very iterative. So we spend a considerable amount of time to talk to athletes and test product. So that's that's kind of. Uh, What is very interesting with computational design you know is you can constantly fine-tune the model and generate a new solution that can then be tested and validated or move on to the next iteration so really like mutation you know i think that was very new because before the process would have been to design one solution and then send it to traditional manufacturing methods and wait months to even have it back and then test on an athletes And then you will have to pretty much rebuild it from scratch, you know. Well, today, if we are able to leverage a new method of make, like additive manufacturing or 3D printing, we can design one solution, test it, gather new data and feed them back into that loop, which is the beauty of a generative system, you know, is that you have that constant feedback loop on a generation of a new solution.
1: That's very cool. Are there any public examples of projects that may have used some elements that you and your team have worked on?
0: Yeah, we have uh, a lot of the basketball LeBron product recently. I've been using computational design. We have some product that just recently came out uh, for the Tokyo Olympics. So a lot of work on like traction for uh, running shoe traction at Seoul, So. And we also do a lot of uh, research projects internally to build like new tool and process and software. You know, a lot of the time out of the shelf software don't really fit the bill for us. And we have to kind of build custom solutions.
1: Yeah, that totally makes sense. And it's actually a perfect transition because I wanted to ask about how you think and approach building your own tools. How do you build something that's new and has never been done before? And how do you balance, you know, data experience and the end user with a new type of tool or physical product? (laughs) that's a
0: complicated question to to answer well uh, you know I think it's really about understanding what we're trying to achieve what are the characteristics of the product we want and what are are we trying to to change and then really finding out what, what are the relevant data set that we can use for that what are the method of validation, because that's very important. I think with generative system, there can be a tendency to get lost if you don't have a good validation method. So you can just generate a bunch of solutions, but you really have to put them through a testing and validation framework. Otherwise, uh, you could end up with a bunch of nonsense really quickly. So it would be hard to describe how they all come together, but it's really about understanding all those aspects and then finding a way for them to talk to each other.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And so as you look around and see generative design taking on a bigger and bigger role, what do you think is missing? What do you wish existed? I think most of the industries
0: still heavily rely on traditional manufacturing method. And that's, a, that's an issue because they don't really allow for the full expression of a generative design approach. Again, at some point, you are stuck with having to freeze the idea on the design in order to mass produce it. So it kind of is a massive challenge for everyone in the industry. There is some transformation happening slowly, but I would say that overall, it's one of the, the biggest pinpoints in the industry because, I mean, at the end of the day, we have to mass produce those products. It's not realistic for most of the company to just 3D print two or three of them.
1: Yeah, completely agree. And so on that note, where do you think the industry is headed? What's the biggest problem that needs to be solved? if we want
0: to plug it to the, to the real world and the physical world I think you need to tackle like finding a way to have more agile manufacturing some method of make that really allowed you to build a batch of one as opposed to have to make a million of the same because otherwise of course generative system will still have a huge impact even if you were to make just the same over and over but I think that the beauty especially in the world that we live today that has so much data you know and so much possibility to create custom and bespoke solution for individuals So I think being able to move to more agile manufacturing is going to be the the true unlock for me.
1: Yeah, it definitely sounds super exciting. Hopefully we can start to see that happen, you know, really soon.
0: Yeah. And I will say one more thing that I still think is lacking a little bit is probably academia partnership also in the industry, you know. I think it is a discipline that is starting to be taught in school, I will say in industrial design school, but there are still like more things that could happen at that level. Like I would love to see industry doing more partnership with academia to really download like everything that they've learned over the last 10 years, like exploring those new methods of design, you know, sharing more with academia.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. And so shifting back to all the projects that you've had a chance to work on, what's been the most ambitious one?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it was by far when I decided to like go on the adventure to make a synthesizer brand, you know, and that was at at a time where I was also really busy at work. I was building that computational design program. I had built that module called the Graphic that was really, really cool, you know. It was that idea of, again, like using graphic to inform like music creation with a modular synthesizer. And a lot of people were excited about it. And people kept asking me like, hey, uh, I want to buy one. Like, can you make one? Can you make one for me? So I started to make like one here, one there. And I will do like everything myself, like from designing the PCB board to soldering the component, programming the chip, making the user manual. And then slowly I realized that there was more and more people asking. So I decided to do a minute run of like 150 of them. And that was not a good. I mean, I should have definitely uh, seek for partnership or someone to help me, someone to build them. Because I end up spending like hours and hours every night just soldering a synthesizer module. You know, and I end up being able to ship them all and uh, cap the project. But it was a very challenging project.
1: Yeah. Wow. That sounds really intense.
0: Yeah. And then I even realized that there was something called quality test, <laughs> on like making sure that all of your customers are happy. So Ada. If you defect on some of the product, you know, as you can always expect when you build something. So then I had to also take that into consideration and like fix them. And it was just a big project. But I learned a lot from it, you know, and it was really exciting to be able to do, to take care of every aspect of the project. From the ID all the way down to having to go to like synthesizer meet to like pitch my, my, my project.
1: And so with this project or the jewelry project or any of the other ones, what's that drive or curiosity behind doing these side projects? What benefit do you think it brings to a maker or creator?
0: For me, what has been interesting that i noticed over the years is in my personal practice, I build a lot of small projects every time. Almost every two years, I have a new project that I commercialize in some way through a limited edition, and I think that's an interesting process because Having a deliverables, having something that you shoot for is almost forcing me to stick was the process of creating and going through like finishing the project wrapping it up because you want to deliver it you know I realized that almost every two years I've been doing like a project of that kind you know like in that 2010 when I was doing the jewelry I made a small laminated run of pendant that I sold online throughout the world in 2012 I did like all the synthesizer work and build module, and I kept kind of like doing those things you know and even recently when I did all those James Bond modeling you know that you can find on my website I made like a series of posts card and i think there is something interesting about that idea of delivering something so you keep yourself on track you know
1: yeah absolutely i couldn't agree more and so what's next for you in terms of personal projects or ideas to explore anything that you can share
0: On my personal practice, uh, it's actually interesting because, you know, I've dived so deep in kind of digital processes that uh, I've been doing a lot more analog music and I've been playing the cello more. I've been learning some new acoustic instruments. I've been also doing a lot of collaboration with yoga studio, playing the cello, and that has been very fulfilling to me. So. I'm very interested in researching those two extremes, almost like diving super deep with generative system and on the other side, having very analog experience. And where is that going to lead me? I don't know as of today, but I feel like there is something interesting there.
1: Yeah, I completely understand what you mean and where you're coming from and talking about those two extremes. And so as far as the field of computational design, generative design, based on what you've learned over your career, what advice would you have to share with the younger version of yourself?
0: Well, I will definitely be very open to always constantly learn new software, you know, because we've seen in the past, I'm from that generation where I actually learned how to code in Flash. And uh, I remember it was a very powerful and strong community. In a matter of a few years, Flash completely disappeared. And there was a lot of people that end up being a little bit stuck because they hadn't moved on to like some of the more like modern language or new, just what the industry had identified as new platform. So I would say for young creative talent, making sure that they don't dive too deep in just one focused area, you know, like make sure that you double down on learning in parallel, like all kind of different uh, software and technique and method. You can't today just do processing. You could, but it's probably you're going to miss on a lot of new platform that maybe can do the same thing in a much more interesting or is your way and I think that is true for most of the software it's, it is a very fast evolving discipline you know even me when I look today at what some of the young students are doing with gan network and style gan I feel like that's not even really something that I've learned or catch on you know so And I will say also making sure to find like good mentorship along the way and investing in communities. Again, when I came to Portland, I spent a lot of time with the synthesizer community. And that was, that gave me a lot of inspiration. And A lot of my personal project came out of those communication and just meeting people, you know, and uh, exchanging, debating and having interesting, meaningful uh, conversation.
1: Yeah, that's really good advice. And I think that's really a great way to end this episode. Lisan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I really, really appreciate having you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Tech Art Podcast. We're a very small team behind this project, so we greatly appreciate all your support. If you love our content and these podcasts, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with a friend or two. This really does go a long way in helping us get discovered and reach more creators. As always, you can find us online at maketechart.com or at maketechart everywhere else. See you soon.